It's the audio book now. It's Danny Boy. I ain't mad at you. I am mad at you. I ain't mad at you. But I'm mad at you, baby. Oh, 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 oh. So let's get to the point I was at. The thunderstorm. After my instinct with you, I humbled myself and checked into the Martha Rose Hotel in West Hollywood, which was hardly a downgrade when I had heard that R&B group Judy had stayed there that had excited me. Back in my dough OAP days, we would sing their songs and mimic their performances. We wanted to be just like them. Only moments before I had been in Chicago dreaming of fame. Now I was walking and living in the same place as my childhood idols had lived and I didn't take that for granted. My time at Lil Montrose was exciting. I constantly found myself in the presence of greatness. Legends in the making. In fact, it was during my residence that I would meet the man who become the notorious B.I.G. That meeting ended up costing me quite a bit of money though. I had gone up to the rooftop to smoke a bit of weed and I guess he must have followed the trail of the smoke. When he found me, he asked, Yo, daddy boy, uh, will you get the chronic? Because Biggie Smalls want to smoke that shit. In person, Biggie is large as his persona, so I gave him a smoke. And from that moment on, we were smoking buddies. We literally smoked all night. When I met Biggie, he was writing the verse to what become one of his most iconic songs. He walked around in just his socks. To be honest, they were the dirtiest thing I've ever seen in my life. At the time, he he was just getting ready to come out. Like many other artists, Lee Montrose, Biggie was walking on his new music. He walked around with his raggedy notepad and he just kept repeating the lyrics. Cause I see some lady this night that be having my baby. Uh, uh, yeah, my baby, the Biggie Smalls. He said the lines until all my smokes was gone. I went back to my room. I felt stupid as hell. I had spent $350 on that sack of crack. The next night, he smoked me out again. Biggie loved his weed, man. It was good to be back in Cali. Because I was missing my girl. I was young. I was lovesick and Trina was barely taking my cars. It took quite a bit of convincing to get her to agree to the trip. But I guess she had some love for the kid after all. I wanted her there, but I took a chance and asked the label to fly her out. Maybe it was just a native or just testing my limits, but whatever. It was, it worked, before I knew that Trina was on the flight to LA. Initially, it was supposed to be a three-week trip. To my delight, she ended up staying there with me. 
while we were staying at the Mondrian, we learned that some of the cats from the Wayne Brothers show in the living color were staying there, including the great Jamie Foxx. I got to meet a lot of people, but Baby Williams and Jamie Foxx were two of my favorites. Jamie was starring in the living color at the time, and Baby Wins was a gospel loyalty. As big as the city was, the Hollywood community was a pretty close-knit. People connected all over like interest. Jamie and I had music in common, and that was enough. We would sing and he'd play the piano. He was a humble brother. There was no superstar antics. Just vocals and keys. Jamie was a friend and kind of like my first celebrity neighbor. And after a while, it was time to change hotels again. When I moved to the next hotel, I had the chance to kick it with some of my future label mates. I met Chicago R&B group B. Rizal and Snoop Doggy Dog and the Dog Pound and Nate Dog and some more of Shook's homies. You were pretty damn rough and tough around the edges. Some of them came from the group called the M.O.B. Bloods. At the time, Snoop Dogg, the, the main rapper in the world at the time, just about the biggest album Doggy Style, and now he was working on Murder Was The Case. Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, Nate Dogg, and Rowan G were rehearsing for the Arsenio Hall Show. That's when Suge decided that I was going to come out during their set and do something. Suge said that he didn't care if I sang a church song or an oldie. It didn't matter. All he wanted to do was introduce me as a new artist and I wasn't even officially signed yet. Suge always seemed to be one step ahead when it came to my career. It was no time before he brought DJ Quick on board. I'll tell you, DJ Quick was one of the most talented, gifted artists I ever met. He and I clicked straight away and he quickly became my big brother and musical mentor. Quick was more capable than a rapper. He was capable of producing across the genre. He knew how to bring all the greatest musicians together and just what he did when he recorded Come when I call your name When we played the song for Suge, he went crazy. Even though the record was already being mixed, he insisted that it be placed on the Murder Was The Case soundtrack album. That was the big moment for me. I started calling and telling people that I would be on the record. I couldn't wait to get back to the hotel to tell Trina the good news. I had planned to take her out to a restaurant, but she wasn't feeling well. She had been nauseous and she started to vomit. Trina could mean, but at this time it had risen to another level. All the sims that pointed to pregnancy. So we took a trip to the nearest CVs and picked up a test. When we got back to the room, two little pink lines confirmed our suspicions. We were going to be parents. 
Um, Trina, I ain't mad at ya, no. The challenge of being a teenage parent was a little concern to me. I felt like an adult and my career was on the rise. I felt like I was capable of caring for a child. I was excited. I so was Trina. I quickly called my mom to tell her the news. For so long it had been my other sibling calling to tell her that she was going to be my grandmother. It was finally my time. My mother was over the moon. My mom asked me, when is she due? I could tell that she was smiling to ear to ear, but when I asked her to give consent to me to marry Gina, she said, You're already married, boy. I'm your wife. I'm certain that she would have made it happen if I pressed her. But the subject of marriage was short-lived. For the moment, we were focused on becoming parents. Things were good for me. I was working on my album and preparing to do the Arsenio. I couldn't wait for my mother and my grandmother to see me on television. It was hard for my grandmother to believe that I was actually working in L.A. Because people had begun to spread some nasty rumors. They told her I was actually in Los Angeles selling drugs. Can you believe that? When I would send my advances home to my mother and grandmother, it fueled speculation. I didn't want my grandmother thinking I was sending her drug money. Seeing me on television would finally put the rumor to bed. But we never made it to the Arsenio Hall show. At the last minute, Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre and their crew decided to back out. They all came up with excuses for whatever their reason. I secretly believe it was a response for Suge Knight pulling Warren G so I could perform. Warren G, as I found out, was not a big fan of Snoop and Nate Dog and Dre's half-brother but was not signed to this label. I found it weird at first but I didn't ask no questions about that. After the fiasco at the Arsenio Hall show, I started to focus on my promotion for my record. There was a bit of buzz as my name was popping up in magazines. And my image was wrapped. Vehicles was on rap vehicles and all over BET and MTV. I was so happy because I now had proof when I sent home copies of my promotional album. I had something to show my grandmother to prove to her that I wasn't selling drugs. It, it wasn't church music. I grown up singing. But I was singing nonetheless. Before this, I had been known as a church boy. But there was something totally different. My mother was so proud that she took one of the albums to church. It was a big deal because she was on the pastor's aid committee. To her defense, she had no idea about the lyrical content. She was just a proud mother sharing her son's accomplishments with the church family. I didn't think that her or my grandmother paid any attention to the lyrics. I mean, I was talking about sex. And quite explicitly, to my delight, that didn't harp on my mock departure from gospel. 
They were just happy to see me happy. While they were good on the music front, they were beginning to fall apart on the home front. Trina and I began to argue. Trina was older and more mature, but I thought she was being too motherly. I was hanging around guys who handled their women differently, so I began bring that behavior home. I started feeling myself. I would call her out of her name, disrespecting her at every turn. Trina! was right about a lot of things. I could get past her anger. In my mind, she was mean. It was her mind. I had become someone other than the guy she had fallen for. Our relationship had gotten so bad that when we returned to Chicago for the holidays, I was in a limo to my grandmom's house and Trina was in a town car on the way to her mom's. When I arrived on 19th and Trumbull, there was a sea of people there to greet me. Everyone out there, my childhood friends, even some of my childhood bullies were in the crowd. People once had made fun of me, were out in the crowd trying to catch a clip. It was crazy. The limo waited out front when I took into the house and took a nap on my grandmother's couch. When I woke up, my grandmother had my Aunt Diane make me breakfast with my favorite slab bacon and a thick cut that take an hour to chew. It was good to be home. When I finally went back outside, all my buddies were out there waiting for me on the porch. Those who could fit piled in the limo with the rest of the crew followed behind. We partied all night long and into next week. I gave every person that asked. By the time I left, I had spent 15k partying, shopping, and just giving money away. I felt good. It was something my parents would have done. They were givers. If someone was in need, they would do what they could do to help. As much as my mother sacrificed, I wanted to give something to her. That Christmas of 94, I was able for the first time to give her a real gift. The only thing my mother wanted was a trench coat and a gold ring. I can't even describe the feeling that I had. It was a small gesture and it didn't cost much, but it felt good to make my mother smile. It's a done deal. After the holidays, I was eager to get back to LA. It was finally time to sign my contract. The only problem was that my parents wanted me to wait and retain a lawyer. But that would take more time. I was ready to make everything official. Shook Knight and his lawyers had already been asking for the contract. So I ended up forging my mother's name. I was a kid from Chicago with 250 grand deal on the table. There was no way I was going to risk waiting on a lawyer. About a week after the contract was signed, the label gave Shorty a check for the total amount. This was standard business as he is responsible for me to get into a lake. He had hired Pitbull who had essentially got me the deal. 
so I expected that he would need to regroup expenses plus a small percentage, but that wasn't how things went down. Suge Knight's first wife, Sharifa, met us at Citizens Bank after Shorty cashed the check he got in the car with Sharifa and gave her a hundred grand in cash. When we got back to the hotel, Shorty gave me 25 grand in, and that was the last time I ever saw him. The same period, the same person who got me started on death row had taken my money and left me stranded on death row. It took me some time to realize that I had been scammed. I was a teenager, 25 grand was still a lot of money. But when Shirley didn't return, I knew I had been taken advantage of. It was difficult to process as an artist. I received less than anyone involved. Shit, Suge Knight wasn't even supposed to get paid out of that money. When Shirley took off with the advance, he also left me with responsibility of taking care of the other guys that had come out with us. Fuski and some members of the crucial conflict were still in Los Angeles. The 25 grand wasn't going to last long. It was hard hit, but I was going to get back to work. Plus, my label, Death Row, was depending on me. And I needed to deliver. I went back to the studio with DJ Quick and his production manager, G1. During those sessions, I had a chance to meet musicians that were playing for many big names in Hollywood. G1 had connections with all of them because he had returned from Brandy's I Wanna Be Down Tour. Man, we were in the studio every day recording. Quick samples were minimal because he mostly used live musicians. The music was incredible. It was organic. Those were some of my best sessions. I was high off the music alone. But like many times in my life, that high was short-lived. When I got home, there was a message on the machine about my mother. She had fallen ill. I was anxious to see her, but my grandmother told me that she was alright. And she just wanted to let me know she was back in hospital. She told me to stay in Los Angeles and continue working. I couldn't agree until I actually heard my mother's voice. I quickly placed a call to the University of Chicago Hospital. When I called, my mother answered and we talked on the phone to a long time. She was just laughing in her soft voice. The last gave me hope that she was okay. Suge Knight called to check on me. He asked what hospital she was in. And the next thing I knew, he had filled her hospital room with flowers. Within a week, my mom was released. She returned home to my grandmother who had just had surgery herself. Heart issues were common in my family, but it wasn't unusual for one or both of them to be sick. My mom would sit on the couch and my grandmother would sit in a lazy bar chair. They would take care of each other. Each time I called, to check on my mother, she would ask if Trina had given birth yet. I said, not yet, mama. I told her I was excited to share the news. They were going to have a girl and I had been there for the ultrasound. But we would all have to wait to meet her. It would be another four months before our little princess would arrive. Even though I signed the record deal, I had a baby on the way and mad bills to pay. 
I was still a minor, living apart from my parents created legal problem. I needed a guardian who could be in the state of California with me. Because of heart condition, my mother couldn't travel. My father was in his 60s and too settled in Chicago to pick up and move to California. I considered Trina, but I wasn't going to set myself up like that. If I gave her that kind of control over me, I would really have to come in the house and when she said, Oh, hell no! I won't have him that! When I went to Suge Knight with my dilemma, he told me that he talked to my mom in the hospital and promised her that she would, he would take care of me. Suge said to me, You know what it is? Yo, Danny boy, you're always with me. I might as well adopt you. You know, you know what it is. As long as you don't go all Hollywood on me, man. Stay there, stay down. You understand? Once his lawyers drafted the documents, we had them signed. I officially became a knight. Mid-January 1995, I was in the lobby of the hotel waiting for Dave Foreman, who hadn't been in most of my recording sessions. I was sitting at the bar at the window when he arrived. When he came in, he had Darius McRae with him. Darius was the was one of the stars on the television show Family Matters. Matters. He played Eddie Winslow. Darius was accompanied by his cousin who was working on music with him. Like so many others in the industry, we connected over music. We exchanged numbers and vowed to keep in touch. A few days later, Darius called me and told me that his cousin had died in his sleep. It was the same cousin that I just met a couple of days earlier. Darius wanted to know if he could put me on the program. It was a familiar place to me. I was always singing at funerals as a gospel singer. I actually had the honor to be asked when I met Darius' mother and siblings. They were some of the nicest people. They treat me like I had known me for years and quickly became my extended family. The day of the funeral, I sang solo and Darius and I sung a duet. After the service, I had a chance to meet the rest of the family. They reminded me of my own family. They came together and we would when we experienced loss. They showed me so much love and affection for one another. I could tell the conversation that they saw each other all the time. It wasn't just a funeral talk. They weren't in love with each other just because someone had died. After the funeral, I got back to recording my album. I was working with some great producers and things were looking good. Murder of the Case soundtrack had dropped and could not be kept on the store shelves. It was the shit. People all over were hearing my voice. My dreams were coming true. I met MC Hammer and Keisha Cole during this time. MC Hammer brought her up to death row. She was just trying to be an artist. Keisha Cole would hang around the label and travel with us from time to time. We were bounded like siblings. I was the big brother. 
I even give her some vocal lessons at one time. There were the good times. Before long, she would grow up and show her ass. Chat next dear mama, February 8th, 1995. I had been in the studio working on the song Call On Me with Kevin Lewis, son of a jazz legend. Studio sessions were normally easy for me, but that night I kept getting hung up on one part. I just couldn't get it right. The part was so simple that the guys couldn't understand why I was having such difficulty. Something was off because I didn't give it much thought, but death row security secretary, I mean, came in with an urgent message. I rushed to the phone. On the other end was my grandmother. She told me that my mother had come back in the hospital. She said, you need to come, you need to come home, boy. In the past, my grandmother also told me to stay. You work. She would say, this time she was calling me to come home. She had confirmed that what my spirit already knew. It was the reason I couldn't focus in the studio. My mother was on her deathbed. I immediately called my homie Young Buck. He was my first friend in Los Angeles. If there's anyone I could count on, it was him. When he got there, things went from bad to worse. There was a terrible storm and a pending evacuation for the area. Just two blocks away, the streets had been flooded and traffic lights were underwater. Flights were delayed so I wouldn't be able to get out of LA until the next day. I couldn't sleep. I placed the paste and paced the floor all night calling my grandmother to pray. I was desperate to be on my mother's side. I could feel... Here leaving. The next afternoon I called my grandmother to tell her I was on my way. When her, when I dialed her house, my aunt Diane answered the phone. My aunt had suffered brain damage several years prior and was subject to speak without restraint. So when I asked her to let me speak to my grandmother, she said, Your mom's gone to the hospital, daughter for dad. She just spit it out like it was nothing. It was a brutal way to find out my dear mama was gone. She said, you coming up here? I dropped the phone and I ran straight out the door. I didn't know what to do. I sat in the middle of the driveway in a pool of water. Young Buck was trying to get me off the ground. Trina was calling for the other people in the house to help me. She even called Suge Knight to see if he could help. When she finally got him on the phone, he kept telling me, what it is, it's alright, he's alright, yeah. He offered to fly out with me, but I chose to go alone. The five hour fight to Chicago seemed like it took the whole day when I finally landed. I rushed down the stairs to the rival area into the car of my regular driver. We took the normal route, but traded out normal banner for the solemn drive. My friends were waiting for me when we pulled up. The tears and nods, I made my way upstairs to my grandmama's home. When I opened the door, there was a sea of faces looking at, out at me. And at the center, my grandmother sat in a lazy boy chair, absent from her usual smiling face. It was real. My mother was gone. 
I put my head on my grandmother's lap and cried until I fell asleep. Early the next morning, we woke up and prepared to go to the funeral home to make the arrangements. When we arrived, the funeral director took me back to view my mother's body. My insides felt like they had dropped on the floor. It was impossible to explain the feeling. We had been so deeply connected. Now I was making plans to bury her. It was more than overwhelming. I was crushed. But there was... There was not... There was so much to do, man. On February 12, 1995, when we arrived at the funeral home, there were cars lined up further than I could see. As I walked up the stairs, I recognized my old classmates and teachers that I hadn't seen since my 8th grade graduation. People from the radio station and many more people that I didn't even know. People were coming in. One after other, I sat in disbelief as people walked up and offered their condolences. The service began with the reading of my mother's favorite scripture. John 3.16, not Austin 3.16, because he just wet my ass. After the scripture, there was a solo. Joel walked down the aisle and up to the podium. I hadn't been sure she would make it, so it was a, a pleasant surprise. Everyone's eyes were fixed on her because her breath was so near spilling out of her shirt. Nonetheless, I was happy to have her there. She was the only artist on death row that showed up to support me. When it was time for me to sing, it was the most difficult performance of my life. I wasn't daddy body artist. I was a child who just lost her his mother. When I walked past her casket, I almost fell out, but I had to pull it together. I felt a sense of responsibility to sing the way my mama had taught me. I sang calm in the meditative gospel standard. When I see Jesus. Though I had sung it many times before, I could only make it a second verse. I cried through the rest of the song. I buried my mother the next day. I, when I arrived at the funeral home, I was able to see my mama one final time. I sat there looking at her body. It was painful, and, but I couldn't move. I sat there looking at my mama until the funeral directors came over to cover her face and close her casket. Back on the road. Oh yeah, I get so emotional about my mother. When our flight landed in Los Angeles, Trina went back into the apartment and I went to Suge Knight place. He and I sat and talked for a long time. I don't think Suge Knight really knew exactly what to say, but he kept talking to me anyway. Every time he'd speak, it would 
take me back to my mama. I would just sit there and cry. Even he was fighting back tears. Can you imagine that, Suge Knight, crying over my mother? The support he gave me after I lost my mother was a cement to our relationship. That's when Suge Knight really took me under his wing. We talked about Shorty's disappearance and how he made off with 125 grand. Once Suge Knight found that out, he really made sure he began, he looked out for me. He began treating me as if I was his real son. Some of the other label mates didn't like that and it silently stirred up some animosity between them and I. Later on that day, I went to Can-Am Studios and Death Row Studios to finish the song that Kevin Lewis and I had been working on before I left. It's I'll Be There. I was a song about loving someone but having to let them go. This time I sang my pain, my passion was more evident than ever. Before I left I was just a kid who experienced hadn't experienced much but now I was becoming a man and a father in a world without my precious mother. I put all my emotion into that one song. After my mother's passing away I became more passionate about my craft. Music was healing. I knew that my mama would have wanted me to sing as hard as I could. I sang in the studio. I would have visions of my mama point to the floor or ceiling to tell me to sing high or low. I had to do it. As weeks passed, trainers' contractions began to become more persistent and false lives continued. On March 4th, it was finally the real thing. The contractions were coming closer together. At about 10 p.m. Tweener's water broke. I anxiously paced the floor, nervous and not sure what to do. Once I finally put her in the car, we drove from the valley to see the Sinai Hospital. It was the hospital that all the money was went to. I thought I was bawling, so I was taking Trina to a place. The stars in Hollywood gave birth, but while we had money and other stuff, we didn't have insurance, and Cedar Sinai was quick to direct us to the nearest county hospital. We got back in the car and I drove back to the valley, all while Trina was still in labor. I called everyone I knew in Los Angeles to get help finding a hospital. One of my homies told me to go to the hospital in Slimer. He assured us that we wouldn't have any problems there. By the time we got there, I had to go in and get with someone to help us. When they came out and saw that she was in labor, they immediately rushed her into labor and delivery. We sat all night waiting for her to have the baby. At the break of the day, the contractions even were closer together, but not close enough for her to deliver. They decided to induce her labor. While we were waiting for Trina's labor to progress, I got a call from my boy Darius telling me that he was downstairs. He, I told him the room number and he came up immediately. Darius and I sat by the bed, counting the time in between the contractions. By the time the midwife came in to tell us it was time, Trina was hollering and screaming. The pain had gotten so bad that she actually kicked. 
the midwife on the one side of the room to the other. When the midwife got off the floor, she walked out and left Darius and I into the room with Trina. It was the craziest thing. Darius was on one side of the bed and I was on the other. Trina was pushing and pushing. She was having a hard time. It looked like we would have to deliver the babies our damn selves. Darius was a trooper though. He and I were coaching Trina through. I said, come on, you got this. We kept saying, you're going to have this baby. She was pushing for a while before we saw the crown of the baby's head. We yelled for the doctor to come in and help us. He made it just in time. Within 10 minutes, the baby was finally born. Just as the baby began to cry, I saw the doctor say, Congratulations, it's a girl. As soon as he said that, the tears began to roll down my face. I couldn't explain the joy I felt holding my first bump for love for the first time ever. Nor could I explain the pain that I felt knowing that my mother was just one month of seeing my baby girl be born. I named our princess Ashley Doctrine Lashie Stewart in combination of mine and my mother's name. After Aiding Ashley's delivery, Daniel said, Man, I was here so I earned the right to be the godfather. I didn't have a problem with that. He had definitely proven himself. Since he was a friend enough to assist the birth of my first child, he had more than earned the title. Plus, Darius was good. People, it was a good choice. Three days later, Darius called me at the studio and asked to meet me at my spot. Man, I just got to my house and Darius jumped out of the car. His back seat was full of stuff for Ashley. When he came and popped the trunk, that was full too. He said, come on man, help me take this up. He said to me, I'm going to get back, back, back to the back seat. He was passionate about his godfather role and his fervor confirmed that he was the right choice. I was excited to bring my daughter home, but I was not so happy with our location. Before the baby was born, I had moved Trina from the hotel to an apartment. Our place was super nice, but it was in a horrible neighborhood, and I didn't feel safe living there. Suge Knight had no idea we were living in Van Nuys. When he found out, he quickly found us another place to live. But first, I had to go and check it out to see if I liked it. Once again, I called my homie Young Buck and we went to check out the home. It was beautiful. It was like a resort, like property. I didn't care how it looked on the inside. I was ready to move in that day. I called Shug Knight and told him I wanted to move in immediately. Shug Knight had placed the furniture and had it all furnished. And a few days later, the office hired a nanny. Things were getting better by the day.